everyone. Welcome to the May 29th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our top stories. An artificial intelligence device has restored function, allowing a paralyzed patient to walk with crutches. The International Paraplegic Foundation Chair in Spinal Cord Repair at the Center for Neuroprosthetics and the Brain Mind Institute of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne and, uh, and their partners have created a device that allows patients with total spinal cord injuries to stand, walk, and even participate in recreational activities such as swimming, cycling, and canoeing. The device is called Digital Bridge, the product of a breakthrough study that could represent a quantum leap in the treatment of certain brain and central nervous system injuries. The device uses artificial intelligence to decode brain signals that enable the patient to move around independently. The foundation chair said that when there's a spinal cord injury, the brain is disconnected from the spinal cord, so the communication is interrupted. So what the scientists have been able to do here is to re-establish the communication between the brain and the regional spinal cord that is that controls leg movement with a digital bridge. That so-called digital bridge can effectively turn thought into actions or as it captures thoughts and translates them into a stimulation of the spinal cord. According to the study published in the journal Nature, the experimental treatment has been tried just once on 40-year-old Gert John Oskan, a man who suffered a spinal cord injury in a bicycle accident. For nearly 12 years, he was unable to walk steps or stand, so the team implanted two devices, one into his brain and another into his spinal cord. The two devices communicate wirelessly, hence the name Digital Bridge, or as the paper calls it, the Brain-Spine Interface, or BSI. As the first such test pilot of the newly invented system, he has regained function in his knees, hips, and ankle joints, and now he can walk slowly for about 300 to 600 feet with the help of crutches and he can stand with support from his hands for two to three minutes at a time and can even climb a few stairs. Perhaps, and most remarkably, the treatment appears to work even after the system is shut off. When Mr. Oskam thinks about walking, the skull implants detect electrical activity in the cortex, the outer layer of the brain, and this signal is wirelessly transmitted and decoded by a computer that he wears in a backpack, which then transmits the information to the spinal pulse generator. After around 40 rehabilitation sessions using the brain-spine interface, Mr. Oskam had regained the ability to voluntarily move his legs and his feet. A neuroscientist at the University of Auckland in New Zealand said, that this continued improvement in spinal function is great news for anyone with a spinal cord injury, because even if it's a longer-term chronic injury, there's still a few different ways that healing could happen. 
Now the team is currently recruiting three people to see whether a similar device can restore arm movements. And a Sunnyvale, California company has announced the availability of artificial intelligence tools for underwriting workers' compensation policies. The software company known as Mulberry provides a cloud-based platform for small and medium-sized businesses to purchase and manage their workers' compensation insurance. Mulberry's platform uses artificial intelligence to automate the insurance buying process, making it easier and faster for small and medium-sized businesses to find the right coverage at the best price. And its customers include businesses in a variety of industries, including retail, healthcare, and technology. Now they have just announced the launch of its Risk Engine, what they say is a first-of-its-kind risk assessment offering for workers' compensation underwriters. Mulberry trained its Risk Engine to determine factors that impact claims based on millions of pieces of information, including firmographic information, previous loss experience, and workers' compensation information. This cloud-based product allows intuitive access to predictions on demand from any software as a service application, as well as easy deployment. It enables users to analyze and score prospects one at a time or in bulk, and all data is obfuscated to make the information private and secure. It allows underwriters to make predictions for claim propensity, claim severity, and the loss ratio likelihood of the loss ratio getting worse than a profitable level. Mulberry has won the 2023 InsureTech Innovation Award for Best InsureTech Solution for PEOs and Brokers. Also, the 2023 InsureTech Rising Star Award and the 2023 InsureTech Best of Show Award. And now our litigation report. The California Supreme Court has expanded the employee whistleblower protections in California. In this case, an employee identified in court records as ACR worked as a bartender at Colas Incorporated, a nightclub in Orange County. In 2014, she complained to her supervisor, Gonzalo Estrada, that she had not been paid wages owed for her previous three shifts of work. Estrada responded by threatening to report her to immigration authorities and then terminating her employment, telling her never to return to the club. She then filed a complaint against Estrada and Colas with the Department of Labor Relations, Division of Labor Standards Enforcement, which ended up suing this employer. The trial court found in favor of the worker and awarded her damage, but Colas appealed arguing that she was not protected by Labor Code Section 1102.5 because she had disclosed the unlawful activity as a whistleblower to a supervisor who already knew about it. The California Court of Appeal agreed with the employer and reversed the trial court's judgment, ruling that Labor Code Section 1102.5 Subdivision B only protects an employee from retaliation for 
disclosing unlawful activity to a person or agency that does not already know about the unlawful activity. And here the employer already knew she had not been paid on time. The case worked its way all the way to the California Supreme Court, and in a unanimous decision, it reversed the Court of Appeals judgment and reinstated the trial court's award of damages. The Supreme Court held that the Labor Code does, does indeed protect an employee from retaliation for disclosing unlawful activity to a person or agency that already knows about the unlawful activity and reasoned that it was the legislative purpose of the statute to protect employees from retaliation for reporting unlawful activity regardless of whether the person or agency to whom they report the unlawful activity already knew about it. This court's decision is a significant victory for employees who are retaliated against for reporting or whistleblowing unlawful activity, and the decision makes it clear that an employee is protected as a whistleblower even if they report unlawful activity to a person that already knows about it. Late last Friday, a Santa Clara County jury awarded $2 million to Yonez Makar, a deaf farmer part-time package handler at FedEx Ground. The jury found that Makar had been repeatedly denied reasonable accommodations and the interactive process at the company's San Jose facility. Mr. Makar began working for FedEx Ground back in 2011 in Virginia, and he claimed in his lawsuit that he was denied promotions and proper interpretive services during his time in Virginia. So, in order to find a better workplace and higher pay, he transferred to the FedEx San Jose facility in 2017, hoping to find accommodations for his communication disability. Months later, FedEx finally arranged a meeting with Mr. McCarr to discuss reasonable accommodations, and they agreed to provide American Sign Language, that's ASL, interpreters, for safety meetings and video remote interpreting, excuse me, video remote interpreting, which is VRI, for daily meetings. But despite this agreement, ASL interpreters were often absent from these safety meetings, and the VRI system did not arrive until many months later, after which it had technical issues. Mr. McCarr also discovered that FedEx continued to promote less qualified non-deaf employees similar to his experience in Virginia. And when he complained about the denied accommodations, he faced multiple write-ups and eventually faced termination. He chose to resign instead. FedEx expressed disagreement with the jury verdict and stated that it was reviewing options for an appeal and said it is committed to fair and equal treatment of all employees, including those who are deaf or hard of healing. However, during McCarr's employment in San Jose, FedEx was already engaged in a legal battle with the EEOC over its treatment of deaf package handlers nationwide. And the EEOC accused FedEx ground of <clears throat> discriminating against deaf and hard of hearing employees because of a failure to provide necessary accommodations such as 
ASL interpretation, and closed caption training videos. Then in 2020, FedEx agreed to pay $3.3 million to up to 229 individuals as part of a nationwide settlement with the EEOC. And it also entered into a consent degree committing to provide live and video ASL interpreting, scanning equipment with non-audible cues, and warning lights on motorized equipment for deaf and hard-of-hearing package handlers. Cedars-Sinai Medical Center operates a nonprofit academic medical center in Los Angeles with a total workforce of more than 15,000 employees, including approximately 2,100 doctors and 2,800 nurses. Deanna Hodges began working for Cedars back in 2000, and she worked in an administrative role throughout her tenure with no patient care responsibilities. Her office was in an, in an administrative building Cedars owned about a mile away from the main medical campus, but she occasionally visited the main medical campus in her capacity as an employee. A shuttle bus ran continuously between the main medical campus and the administration building, and many Cedars employees traveled between the two sites on a daily basis. In 20, excuse me, in 2007, uh, Ms. Hodges was diagnosed with stage three colorectal cancer. So she stopped working for a year and a half to undergo treatment, which included chemotherapy, which was effective to rid her of cancer, but left her with lingering side effects, which included allergies, a weakened immune system, and neuropathy. But none of these side effects limited her ability to perform her job functions, and she successfully returned to work for Cedars in 2009 and was under no obligation to get a flu vaccine when she was hired or when she returned from cancer treatment in 2009. But this changed in 2017 when Cedars announced a new policy requiring all employees, regardless of their role, to be vaccinated by the beginning of the flu season. This was the latest expansion to Cedars' long-standing efforts to limit employee transmission of flu, which had become more urgent in recent years following multiple patient deaths related to flu. The expanded 2017 policy aligned with the recommendations of the CDC that all U.S. healthcare workers get vaccinated annually against influenza. Her doctor wrote a note recommending an exemption for her for various reasons, including her history of cancer and general allergies. But none of the reasons was a medically recognized contraindication of getting the flu vaccine, so Cedars denied her exemption request. And since Hodges still refused to get the vaccine, Cedars terminated her work, so she sued Cedars for disability discrimination. The trial court granted Cedars' motion for summary judgment, and the Court of Appeal affirmed in the published case of Hodges v. Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. One of the necessary elements of her case was a determination that her termination of employment was based on either a disability or the perception by Cedars of her having a disability, which is required by law. 
She argued that her cancer history and neuropathy amounted to a physical disability because they made it impossible for her to work, as she cannot work as she cannot get vaccinated. However, the Court of Appeal noted that she admits her cancer history and neuropathy in no way limited her ability to work in 2017. And in moving for summary judgment, Cedars introduced evidence that she was not disabled and could not prove she was disabled. It offered official guidance from the CDC and testimony from doctors that there were only two medically recognized contraindications for getting the flu vaccine, and none of the, contra, uh, none of the conditions listed on her exemption form were recognized contraindications for getting the flu vaccine. Thus, the Court of Appeal concluded that the summary judgment was proper on her disability discrimination cause of action because she failed to produce evidence sufficient to create a fact issue concerning an essential element of her case, that there was a disability or the perception by Cedars of a disability. And the court went on to say that even if she had made a case for discrimination of any kind, summary adjudication of her disability discrimination cause of action would still have been proper because Cedars presented a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for her termination and she failed to show that this reason was pretextual. And now our crime report. Handy Technologies, a company that offers in-house services through an app, has agreed to pay $6 million and agreed to a permanent injunction to settle a worker protection lawsuit. The San Francisco District Attorney's Office and the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office alleged that the New York-based company misclassified workers as independent contractors rather than employees. Under the settlement agreement, Handy must pay $4.8 million in restitution to workers, which will cover over 25,000 California pros who work between March 2017 to May 2023. And they must also pay civil penalties of $1.2 million for its unlawful practices. Handy says it has now made substantial changes to its business operations in order to no longer run afoul of California's classification laws. Their workers, which they call pros, can now set their own hourly pay rates. They're now able to immediately contact customers to learn more about the requested service and negotiate its terms such as hours and pay without being contractually bound to perform the work or penalized by Henry Handy for rejecting any job. And in regulatory news, a new report by the National Safety Council builds on the Work to Zero Safety Innovation Journey to help organizations assess risks, identify technology solutions, and ready the workplace for the implementation. Specifically, this new white paper which analyzes academic journals, vendor interviews, and company case studies, evaluates the benefits of robotics and autonomous mobile robots on reducing injuries and fatalities in the workplace. 
It also outlines best practices employers can follow to implement robotic technology across a range of workplaces. The paper identified the five most common robot configurations available to employers. Autonomous Mobile Robots, or AMRs. Automated Guided Vehicles, or AGVs. Articulated Robots, Humanoid Robots, and Cobots to assess their key benefits and applications. The authors concluded that this technology can be ideal for manufacturing applications where repetitive high-volume production is necessary and identified several other examples in which employers can use robots to create safer outcomes for their workers, including inspecting confined spaces, transporting parts, goods and materials, using robotic arms for precision cutting and welding, as well as the safe handling of toxic, high-temperature or explosive materials, and machine tending and parts repositioning by using robotic arms and AMRs to reduce risks associated with manual machine handling. However, they said several barriers to widespread robot adoption exist, such as cost of implementation, and ongoing maintenance, which may still be prohibitive for small industrial operations. And some configurations may be disruptive to work environments or need to be coupled with additional safety technologies technologies to effectively mitigate risk. Part 2 of a California Workers' Compensation Institute research series on low-volume, high-cost drugs used to treat California injured workers identified three dermatological drugs, three opioids, and three antidepressants that represent a relatively small share of the prescriptions within their therapeutic drug group, but due to the high average reimbursements have become cost drivers consuming a disproportionately high share of payments. The new report reveals that dermatologicals were the fourth most prevalent drug category in 2021, with 9.3% of the workers' comp prescriptions, but ranked second behind anti-inflammatories in total drug spend, consuming 17.3% of all prescription drug payments. That was up from 12.8% in 2012, which this study ascribes to increased utilization and the emergence of high-priced topical analgesics. In contrast, the study notes three other low-volume, high-priced drugs that have become dermatological cost drivers. Opioid use in workers' comp has been falling for more than a decade now, and with the adoption of opioid and pain management treatment guidelines in late 2017, and a formulary in 2018. The study noted three low-volume, high-priced opioids that have become cost drivers within their group. And they say the top four antidepressants dispensed to injured workers in 2021 represented nearly two-thirds of the antidepressants used, but all four were relatively low-cost drugs, so they accounted for only 42.5% of the payments in this drug group. In contrast, the study identified three low-volume, high-priced drugs that consumed a disproportionate share of antidepressant drug spend. 
The CWCI, CWCI has published more details and analyses on these drugs in a spotlight report, which is available to Institute members and subscribers on their website. Now, part three of CWCI's research on low volume but high cost medications will focus on medications found in the musculoskeletal and ulcer drug categories. The Federal Trade Commission is seeking to block biopharmaceutical giant Amgen from acquiring Horizon Therapeutics. And so it filed a lawsuit in federal court this month to block the transaction, saying it would enable Amgen to use rebates on its existing blockbuster drugs to pressure insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers into favoring Horizon's two monopoly products, one used to treat thyroid eye disease and the other used to treat chronic refractory gout. Neither of these medications have any competition in the pharmaceutical marketplace. The FTC Bureau of Competition Director said that rampant consolidation in the pharmaceutical industry has given powerful companies a pass to exorbitantly hike prescription drug prices, deny patients access to more affordable generics, and hamstring innovation in life-saving markets. The proposed acquisition is the largest pharmaceutical transaction announced in 2022. Nonetheless, Amgen says it remains committed to completing the Horizon acquisition. This new development dovetails with other ongoing work at the Commission in response to widespread complaints about rebates and fees paid by drug manufacturers to PBMs and other intermediaries to favor high-cost drugs at the expense of lower-cost ones. California-based Amgen is one of the world's largest biopharmaceutical companies, with global sales of about $24.8 billion and a product pro portfolio of 27 approved drugs, including blockbuster drug Enbrel for rheumatoid arthritis and Otezlia for psoriasis, as well as Prolia for osteoporosis. The FTC claims that Amgen has a history of leveraging its broad portfolio of blockbuster drugs to gain advantages over potential rivals. And last year, the FTC launched an inquiry into the prescription drug middleman industry requiring the six largest pharmacy benefit managers to provide information and records regarding their business practices. And in medical news, in 2019, health insurance giant Humana filed an arbitration claim against Walgreens, alleging that Walgreens has submitted millions of falsely inflated prescription drug prices to them for more than a decade. This case arises from Walgreens' long-standing contracts with Humana to reimburse Walgreens for prescription drugs for Humana insureds. The dispute centered on the way that Walgreens calculates the usual and customary price of a prescription drug. Humana alleged that Walgreens had been inflating these prices in order to overcharge the insurer. But Walgreens denied these allegations and said 
that it was simply following the terms of its contracts with Humana. After a lengthy hearing, an arbitrator ruled in favor of Humana and awarded the insurer $642 million in damages. So Walgreens has now filed a petition in federal court to vacate the arbitration award, arguing that the arbitrator rewrote its contracts with Humana and used a flawed model to assess alleged damages. However, the bar for vacating an arbitration award by the Federal Arbitration Act is quite high, but it's not insurmountable. According to the Act, a party can appeal an arbitration award if the original award contains material and prejudicial errors of law of such a nature that it does not rest upon any appropriate legal basis or is based upon factual findings clearly unsupported by the record or other grounds. And Walgreens also claims that the law firm Crowell and Mooring should not have been allowed to represent Humana because there was a conflict of interest since that same law firm previously advised Walgreens years earlier on drug pricing matters at the heart of Humana's 2019 arbitration. But the law firm has denied any conflict of interest in representing Humana against the law firm's former client, Walgreens. Humana argued that the arbitrator correctly found that Walgreens breached its contracts and that the damage award is supported by the evidence. Now the outcome of this case could have a major impact on the pharmaceutical industry and the cost of prescription drugs. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.